quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Make sure you're cash flowing today. And if you're not, know that it's speculative and you're hoping for the execution of this sponsor to go flawlessly for them to execute their plan. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and this is another roundtable with my co-hosts, Travis Watts and Slocum Reed. Today, we're going to dive into the big question, is there a syndication bubble? And Travis, I'm going to have you start. If you can give the best ever listeners a little bit about your background and answer your opinion of if you think there's a looming syndication bubble. (laughs) I feel like this is a targeted approach. You just wait till I'm in control of my next episode. It's going to be (laughs) as non-residential commercial, a thing of the past, single family, small multifamily. I'll be ready for you. I will be ready for you. I'm going to bust your guys' chops. All right. Hey, I'm Travis Watts, uh, full-time passive investor, director of investor relations with Joe Fairless at Ashcroft Capital. Long story short, I'm very interested to get your guys' thoughts. This is the world that I play in full-time. So I'm going to go on a whim and say there's not a syndication bubble, and I'm going to give a lot of reasons for that, but happy to hear your viewpoints as well. You know, what's funny. The three of us have such varied backgrounds, and we have different approaches to real estate. So these roundtables become really interesting. And I think today's episode will be exciting as well. Slocum, if you would give the best ever listeners a little bit about your background and your thoughts on if there's a looming syndication bubble. Hey, listeners, Slocum Reed, apartment owner operator in Cincinnati, Ohio. Is there a looming syndication bubble? I think pre-2022, the answer would have been when we see a sharp spike in interest rates, We're going to see a lot of people with shorter hold period plans hit some turbulent waters or some turbulent air with regards to cap rates needing to increase to match those interest rates. The ability to refi being a lot more expensive than people are planning. Syndication is not the space that I play in primarily. So my answer as we continue this conversation is going to be more about what are the things that we can do to prepare And how is it that we can be ready for the changing economy? The short answer is yes, probably. This is Ash Patel. I am a full-time non-residential commercial investor. And my answer is the other extreme. I believe there is a syndication bubble. And one of the topics we're going to touch on today is that it has become so easy to become a syndicator. It's amazing how there's so many people out there six months ago They had a W-2 job that had nothing to do with real estate, and now they're raising $20, $30 million. I think it's a combination of it becoming very easy to get into the syndication game. There have been such great books written, Joe Fairless's 400-page syndication Bible. I've literally interviewed people that have read that book and have become syndicators, which is awesome. On the flip side, there's a lot of people doing syndications that I don't believe are qualified to invest other people's money. And if you look at some of the newer deals out there, 
a lot of them don't pencil out yet people are raising money for it so in terms of has it become too easy to syndicate travis your thoughts on that sure it's a great topic here's my take on it there's been a lot more exposure in terms of marketing and opportunities to get into these conferences or coaching programs, whatever you want to call them, masterminds. So I think the word has certainly gotten out that syndication is a thing in the first place. And I think, unfortunately, as part of marketing, the goal is always to make it intriguing and sexy and simple. It's like, hey, you can go out there and buy your own apartment building, or you can just simply raise money from other people and just share in the profits. And this is how you become a multimillionaire overnight. I think that's the problem. I think the marketing's the problem. It's the same problem if you look at the stock market in companies like Robinhood promoting the idea of commission-free trades. Therefore, they're promoting active day trading, which is usually not a great long-term strategy for most people, statistically speaking. So it brings a lot of novices into the space. So that's kind of my take on it. Definitely want to dive more later into this conversation about actual deals that I'm seeing, about aggressive underwriting, about stuff like that. But from a high level, that's my answer is a lot more marketing and exposure. But I wouldn't say it's any easier to syndicate a deal than it was 15 years ago. It takes a lot of work to go raise capital from other people and to be a general partner and to piece it all together. Slocum, what are your thoughts on the ease of syndication these days? There are a couple of ways I want to come at this, Ash and best ever listeners. One of them is that specific to the markets that I know, Cincinnati and some surrounding areas, I know Dayton pretty well. Brokers have been able to sell deals effectively on pro forma instead of actuals. I know that hearing that is going to resonate with a lot of people working in acquisitions, especially in apartments all over the country. And that has the expectation that you're buying on pro forma instead of actuals, it has taken a lot of the older, savvier investors out of the market, likely, at least hopefully temporarily, but it's allowing brokers to sell more deals to newer investors. I may not be saying that the right way. Maybe what I should be saying is that It's the newer, less experienced people who are more willing to buy on pro forma, meaning buy based on an unproven future performance for the numbers that they're paying. So you're seeing a lot more newbies win bids because they're willing to do that in a way that other people aren't. I would say though, I think the biggest issue here, and Ash, tell me if I'm jumping the gun, but I think personally coming from the long-term buy and hold active investor strategy, The biggest issue that I've had with syndication that I was grappling with two, three years ago, is this something I want to do or not, is the necessity of a shorter or fixed term hold period that necessitates a sale after three, five, or even seven years in order to deliver the returns to your investors that justified their investment in the first place or even necessitating a refinance three, five, seven years from now. Two, three years ago, I didn't want to have to do that because I didn't know where the market would be. And here we are with interest rates up two percentage points from where they were five, six months ago. Slocum, thank you. You brought up a really good point, future performance. I think a lot of people are continuing to chase appreciation only because we've had a great run. And people that have purchased at five caps are now selling at four caps. People that purchased at four, four and a half caps have been able to sell at the high threes. 
And now I see people buying in the mid three cap rates and they have to know that at some point this is going to reverse. And with interest rates going up for the first time in a very long time, future cap rates might be heading the opposite direction. Their exit caps might be a hundred basis points higher. So your thoughts on future appreciation for multifamily specifically. I'll jump in on this one. In my portfolio currently, the majority of my units are C-class on location. And I don't expect C-class workforce housing tenant bases to be all that impacted. Yes, they'll be impacted by inflation. Of course, everyone will be. But we're also still seeing intense wage growth in that sector. There are incredibly few people who are paying cash for syndication size apartment properties. So the vast majority of investors are relying on cost of debt as a big part of the returns that they can deliver. The higher cost of debt is going to decrease what buyers are willing to pay. I think there's an inevitability there. With regards to the performance of our listeners' current portfolios, I have a feeling we're going to end up talking about bridge debt. But That's next. the... Joe put it in his book that you always secure long-term fixed rate debt. And the economy we're experiencing now in early June, 2022 is exactly why he put that in the book. And it's exactly why that's always a part of his plan. And that's why in late 2019, early 2020, and then again in 2021, I refinanced my smaller properties, the ones that qualify for residential 30-year fixed rate debt was to go ahead and get that interest rate locked in for as long as possible so that I knew if something like this happened or if something like this impacted my smaller properties, which are in higher income areas, that I'd be able to ride out a rent decrease if such a thing were to happen. So the long-term fixed rate debt, if that's what you've got on your current portfolio, if you don't have the need to sell or refi in the short term, this is a storm that you can ride out. The issue is that syndication often necessitates a liquidity event in the short term, and that's going to hurt some people. Yeah, Slocum, a lot of great points there, and we'll touch on some of those in our next question. Travis, your thoughts on the future appreciation for multifamily? Yeah, it was a great topic. I think it poses the question you have to ask yourself, are you a speculator or are you an investor? And I've never been much of a speculator. I've made a lot of episodes on that and what the differences are. But basically, I've never been one as a passive limited partner in these syndications to put much emphasis on equity upside. And a lot of our listeners may not resonate with that, may not agree with that. I just never have. I've always looked at cash flow as this is the income stream that I'm investing in. I'm going to use this cash flow to live on. If that's an adequate amount, then maybe it makes sense if I feel like it's conservatively underwritten. I've always been a huge advocate for whatever cap rate you're buying at, your exit cap rate is higher. I've never done a deal where it's the opposite or the same. So of course, I still advocate the same stuff today. So a lot of deals I'm going in at, say it is a three and a half, a four and a half cap or something like that, it's going to be a five and a half, a six cap on the back end. And we might actually realize that to be the case. And so again, you have to look at who's this operator, what's their track record, and what's their experience. And does this deal make sense to you? If you feel like you can go do your own deal and, and that's something that you're interested in and go get a 
10 to 15% cash flow and a 30 IRR, maybe that's the right path for you. But these syndication deals, in my experience, at least the ones I'm still partnering in, still make sense for the foreseeable future. And when I say that, I mean for the business plan that they are. And to Slocum's point and to your point, Ash, been seeing a lot of my deals sell from 2021 to 2022. It's just happened. Equity happened. A lot of people have met or exceeded pro forma in past deals. And now I'm forced to reevaluate. I got all this liquidity and cash. I got to go into something. So I'm heavily scrutinizing and vetting as we talk these syndications. So that's my short answer. Follow-up question for Travis. With you still investing in syndication deals amidst this conversation that we're having and amidst this market, are you changing the way that you vet operators? Are you pickier now about who you'll invest with? I am. That's a great question. Some people may be familiar with my story and background, but when I first started, I threw money everywhere at the wall because I didn't know who was who and I didn't know what was going to work. And maybe as Warren Buffett would say, I was diversifying against ignorance, right? I just I just didn't know what I didn't know. So over the years, I've gotten to learn now through my own experience who's been a trusted, reputable operator that's had consistent, great communication that's actually improved the NOI on these properties and not just we bought this property, we happen to get this off-market sale on it, and then we happen to give a pretty stellar return to our investors. It's time to look at who really performed in their business plans. And those are the only operators I'm investing with. And unfortunately, some of them don't have much deal flow because they're being very picky. So I'm really sitting on more cash than I'm comfortable with, but I'm not going to rush into it and just do a deal to do a deal. A lot of good points. Thanks, Travis. We'll touch on some of those as well. Slocum, you mentioned the cost of debt. I think there's two headwinds to look at with the cost of current debt. One is the easy one, rising interest rates. The other one is higher down payments for multifamily. In the past, if you were just doing straight finance, you can get away with 20 to 25% down. Today, a lot of lenders are requiring 35% down. Now, what does that do to all of those bridge debt loans where they assumed that they would be able to refinance at 20, 25% down? Now they're at 35% down and the interest rate could be 200 basis points higher than what they anticipated. That's going to be a huge challenge for a lot of operators that started their latest deal in the last three years. Bridge debt is typically one to three years, and I see a lot of challenges for those operators and not an easy way out. Slocum, your thoughts on that, please. I think the most powerful three words that you just said were when they assumed. And I think assumption is the issue here. You're absolutely right. There's a part of me that salivates thinking about this because I haven't bought into those deals myself personally. And I see when bridge debt, a three-year term from the last couple of years comes due and people haven't been able to reach performance or for whatever reason they decide they need to sell and they recognize they're not going to be able to deliver that return. I'm going to have my pencil ready. I'm going to be writing LOIs for sure. And it's not just interest rates either. We're seeing bigger prepayment penalties come back as well. But yeah, absolutely. I was one of those people who did a cash out refi on an apartment building at 80% last year. So I get it. I didn't go into that deal assuming I'd be able to get the kind of debt that I did. Assumption is what's going to hurt the most people here about what future 2022 and 2023 would bring back the last couple of years. 
yeah, it's going to hurt people. And hopefully there are a lot of best ever listeners like us who are going to be poised to be buyers when those people have to sell. Slocum, thank you. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Travis, your thoughts on the higher down payments mixed with bridge debt coming due and the interest rates being much higher than probably a lot of people anticipated. Great points totally different market than 2008, 9, and 10, right? As far as lending is concerned. Even if we look at single family, just to use my own neighborhood, because I keep close tabs on it, a lot of cash buyers, a lot of very qualified buyers, a lot of 50% down, this kind of crazy stuff, New York and New Jersey coming down to Florida and stuff like that. Just a different market. Doesn't feel like, to your point, at least 25% down, it seems like on all these properties. So there was a lot of talk in 2020, about if you had looked up the scary headlines and things and YouTube videos about there's going to be this massive flood of these foreclosures. Get ready because housing's about to drop 50%. There's going to be all these good deals everywhere. There's more to the game than just interest rates. I think we all know that. But there's so much of a lack of inventory right now in affordable housing. And C-class, like Slocum pointed out, I'm a B-class investor for the most part. And with interest rates continuing to climb with single family homeowners taking a look where they've either refinanced or bought in recent years at a 3% mortgage. Now they're looking at a five, a six, or who knows, let's say a 7% mortgage. There's going to be even more of a lack of inventory because who's going to want to sell and get rid of that 3% mortgage to go turn around and buy a 7% mortgage. So there's more that's going to help prop up real estate too. It's not all just negative news, but 
That's kind of my high level. I want to mention a couple quick things here about the recession because I just made a, an episode on this, the 2008 and 9. So residential multifamily defaults were around 1% at the peak of the Great Recession. Just something to keep in mind for some perspective as to how ugly and bad it might get. Average rent drops were around 125 per month in residential multifamily in the B-class sector. Vacancy, I think, spiked up around 10% at the worst. So, you know, that's only about 5% away from national average over the last five, six, seven years. Anyhow, it's rare to be 100% occupied. And revenues went down about 10% on multifamily overall. So, yes, it was impacted, but at the end of the day, it's necessary, it's essential, it's affordable workforce housing, like Slocum pointed out earlier. So those are things I always keep in mind as a worst case, if we are going into recession this year, which we very well likely could, we might expect to see some similarities there. Travis, those metrics did not take into account thousands of syndicators out there paying inflated prices for multifamily. And when you talk about workforce housing, I get that wages are increasing. However, rents are increasing as well. And now couple that with inflation, high gas prices, it's putting a lot of pressure on people's discretionary income. In some cases, rents are accounting for 40 to 50% of people's take-home salary. How sustainable is that? Yeah, I think that depends, A, on the property, the area you are, et cetera. A lot of Common ways to screen for a tenant would be kind of 3x the gross income of the monthly rent, right? So here's the deal. The deals that I'm investing in, we're usually buying today where the market rents are, let's call it $200 under the market level. And as I just mentioned, 125 drop nationwide in the Great Recession. And then the business plans usually to bump a couple hundred up to bring it to the market level over, let's say, five years. I think it's very realistic to say that some operators aren't going to hit those metrics. I think it's reasonable to say there's going to have to be a pause in the rent bumps. To your point, how sustainable is it? So what I always look for is what Joe points out in his book. I like to invest in things that are already cash flowing and cash flow positive right out of the gate. I'm not speculating that in three, four, five years, we're going to be $200 a month more in rent. I'm speculating on if we close today and we've got a 15-year track record of this thing cash flowing, that it's going to keep cash flowing even if we go into a recession or even if we have to cut rents minorly through a dip or through a short period that we eventually kind of come out of that on the other side. So again, back to are you speculating or are you investing? And I look at it more from an investor long standpoint. What a great point. And I think that should be driven home to the best ever listeners is make sure you're cash flowing today. And if you're not, know that it's speculative and you're hoping for the execution of this sponsor to go flawlessly for them to execute their plan. Great points. You mentioned liquidity a few times, Travis. I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I think that's one of the things that will continue to drive multifamily in the positive direction is that there's still so much liquidity on the sidelines there's a lot of money chasing deal flow, and there's an overall lack of deal flow compared to two, three years ago. So that's definitely a tailwind for multifamily syndications. And the money that's on the sidelines is actually chasing lower yields, and they're okay with it. It just seems people are desperate for deal flow, both in terms of operators and investors. Slocum, are you seeing that as well? 
Yes, I am seeing fewer deals from the brokers that I frequently correspond with. And my numbers are rarely ever good enough for the broker to tell me that I should submit an LOI. And it's almost always out of town money who has come to Cincinnati recently because they can't get their money invested in whatever market it is that they're coming from. This is a bit of an anecdotal answer because that's not as much the space that I play in. But part of the reason that's not the space that I play in is because of how much competition has come into Cincinnati. That money that is looking to get deployed somewhere, willing to take a little bit more risk, move into a market that it doesn't know. A lot of it in the space where I am, the 20 to 40 unit properties, it's people, East Coast, West Coast money who get it under contract, don't even have a local property manager yet. And it's going to be tricky. It's going to be difficult for them to execute on any sort of plan that involves increasing cash flow. Thank you. Travis, the same question for you, but on a personal level, you mentioned you're sitting on a lot more liquidity than you're comfortable with. Why are you not just chasing lower yields? What's keeping you from deploying your capital? Good question. Well, I think the psychology of when, of course, the public stock market starts falling apart, right? That kind of has a trickle down effect into everything. So I think a lot of people, myself included, go a little bit into kind of that wait and pause, right? No one wants to catch a falling knife. (laughs) And so I don't want to keep chasing the deals just to do a deal, like I said earlier, because I'm trying to wait for one that genuinely and truly and wholeheartedly is coming from a reputable operator that has the track record and experience that really has conservatively underwritten. And to your point, unfortunately, the yields are lower. That's something you have to accept as an LP investor in 2022. When I started investing in these in 2015, it wasn't unheard of to get eight, nine, 10% right out of the gate on your cash flow and to have a 25 to 28% IRR. That was pretty much all the deals that I was seeing. Now we've come way down to four, five, 6% cash flows to 13 to 18% IRRs. But again, I don't even credit the IRRs. I'm happy if I get a double digit return in the end, but can you sustainably make use of a four to 6% annualized yield in year number one with the anticipation that that ticks up over time? If that doesn't make any sense to you at all, and you believe you can do something else or different, and you have the know-how and the passion for it, my advice is go do that. But for so many people that just don't want to take a negative 20, 30, 40, 50% loss in the stock market, potentially, they still might want to just clip a coupon for a couple of years until things potentially pivot. And then hopefully we're back on the road. We'll see. Great point. Great perspective. Let's continue to play devil's advocate. And if this syndication bubble starts to unravel, Slocum, what does that look like and what opportunities are on the horizon? Yeah, you know, the cash that's still on the sideline, assuming the worst in a syndication bubble, the chicken littles win. The people who have been sitting on the sideline, sitting on their cash, waiting for this market to end, they're going to have their moment if that's actually what happens. Do we have the May Consumer Price Index report back yet? I'm not the person to ask. April came in at 8.3. I don't know if there's more data. The projection is, and of course our listeners will know this already, the projection is that May numbers will be significantly lower. If it is the syndication apocalypse, then like you said, Ash, all of that money that's been sitting on the sidelines is going to come swoop in and and take those deals. And I think they'll be bought for pennies on the dollar. 
pennies might be 90 cents on the dollar. I, I think it'll be a lot dollar. of pennies, but it'll be fewer than a hundred pennies. Yes. Yeah. Right. It'll be a lot of pennies. Yeah. Travis, your thoughts on if the syndication bubble unravels, what will that look like and what opportunities will be presented? That's pretty aggressive there on your prediction. <laughs> I think, again, back to demand, both institutionally and Main Street and syndicator-wise, all things considered, I think these get swooped up at slight discounts and nothing major because there's way too much interest out there and no one's going to accept 90 cents or 10 cents on the dollar or whatever it is. They're really going to just have minor discounts. The same way that, let's say, in your neighborhood right now, there's 100 homes and there's two homes that are for sale and all of a sudden there's two foreclosures. They're going to get swooped up in a very similar way. So I don't see an apocalypse happening. You got to know the fundamentals of real estate. What would make something like that happen? I think the best point that both of you have brought up is anyone who's been using a bridge debt that's going to come due and now we're in a higher interest rate environment and they weren't able to execute properly. Obviously, these people are going to run into problems. I can't remember a deal I've ever done. And don't quote me on this because I may have in the past years and years ago where I did a deal with bridge debt. I've never liked it, never trusted it for the same reason I've never had a mortgage with an arm on it, you know, a five-year adjustable. I never trust that stuff. So that was a huge leading problem of the Great Recession in single-family homes. So that's my take on it. There'll be a handful, I mean, obviously more than a literal handful of deals that are in trouble and they'll get swooped up and it'll be a 10% market discount, a 5% discount. It'll be something like that. That's my opinion. Travis, maybe as a follow-up to this episode, this economy has been a lot tougher on employers than employees, and those employers are OSHA's tenants. So maybe we should be having a conversation about how this crazy labor market is going to impact commercial leases. That's a great perspective. And to that point, though, there's a lot of employers who are paying a higher wage just because that's the norm now. They're giving out raises, retention bonuses, and they're not making any more money. In fact, a lot are under increased pressure due to, if they're in the transportation business, gas prices being up. The medical industry, they're getting paid the same. Medicare isn't instituting a 10% wage increase for doctors and healthcare professionals, but yet they're paying their employees more. So a lot of good points out here. And I think today we covered a lot of different angles of what could be to come. I love that the three of us have completely different perspectives on a lot of topics. So thank you all. And Travis, closing statements, if you would, please. I'd say just keep an eye on all the leading indicators to your guys' points of affordability and inflation and the workforce housing. A lot of things will go before somebody stops making their payments because they literally can't. So look at the car repo market. I mean, we've seen what's been happening with Walmart and Target and their share prices and this inventories building. People are buying less luxury watches, things like that. So this is the kind of stuff that I start looking at and it trickles all the way down to one of the last things people want to stop or lose is their house, obviously, right? We all need a place to live. So I am very cautious. I am very concerned for the economy overall. That being said, I still think real estate in general is a safe haven for a lot of investors. And that puts even more demand and even more interest in real estate. Awesome. Thank you, Travis. Slocum, wrap it up for us. Two things here. One is cash flow is king. If you secure long-term fixed rate debt and your income covers your expenses, you can ride out any storm that comes from the economy. That being said, not only is there a 
a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines right now, hungry for deals, but also another major shift that we've seen since 2015. The way that I've talked about it within my investor sphere here in Cincinnati is that we'll never un-bigger pockets our city. You can figure out about Cincinnati real estate at Cincinnati cash flow in your undies, on your phone, on the beach in California. And that's never going away. The amount of information that's available, the ability to contact brokers, the ability to find deals, that's never going away. When you combine that with how much cash is on the sidelines, I don't know that any recession could be as major as it was in 08, 09, 2010 because of the amount of information and capital that's out there. Great points, Locum. Thank you for that. Best ever listeners, my thoughts are when you're looking at deals, whether you're a passive investor or an active investor, stress test your models with vacancy, increased rates, increased cost of capital, increased short-term debt cost, cost of materials going up. Just stress test all of your models and see what that looks like. Don't just do your performas on past appreciation and look at things through two different lenses going forward. Travis Slocum, thank you for a great conversation today. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Follow, like, and have a best ever day.